Well, please remain standing and let's take our Bibles out together. That firm foundation that we have been given. And turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. We'll be continuing our look through a portion of chapter 4. We're looking at verses 11 through 16, but let's begin our reading this morning back in verse 1 to make sure we have the context of these verses in mind. We'll begin in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians. This is God's word. Let us give heed to its reading this morning. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction. We thank you for its promises. We thank you that it reveals to us your will. We thank you that it reveals to us our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us now, that as we open up a portion of this word and look at it, Lord, that we would be blessed, that we would be increased in our understanding, O oh Father, and and that we would give thanks to you for your grace and your provision for your church. And we ask this in the name of Christ, the head and the king of the church. Amen. You can be seated. The church, and of course you know that when we talk about the church, we are not talking about a building we're talking about the people who make up the church. But the church is made up of a lot of different people, a lot of different kind of people, people from different backgrounds, with different interests and different abilities, different experiences that all go into shaping who each of us are. 
And that is true both in the sense of the universal church and it is true for Reading Reformed Fellowship. It's true for our congregation. We're varied. We're different. But we also have a lot of things in common. A lot of very important things in common. We're all people. We'll start there. We're all sinful people. And therefore, uh, we, are, or, or we are sinful people because we are fallen people. Paul told us earlier in the book of Ephesians here that we are all dead or we're all dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, he says, because of his great love and his great mercy, he saved us. And all of us who are born again, well, the way we have been brought into a right relationship with God is another thing that we all have in common. We who are part of the church, we have been saved, have been saved by God's grace through faith. Faith that he gave to us, grounded in and based on the marvelous redemptive work of his son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us that he might save us from this present evil age, the scripture says. We also have in common that as Christians we are all being sanctified. We are all being made more and more like Christ. We are all being made to grow in our faith and in our understanding and and in our Christianity. Until that day when we will be given glorified bodies and purified spirits and will all dwell blessed in the presence of God forever. So regardless of the differences that we have, we have those important things in common. We also have in common that we are all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit who does that work of sanctification in us and who, Romans 8, 26 tells us, who intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. But the Spirit works in us and, and we want to mark that this, this same Holy Spirit who dwells in each and every Christian, no exceptions, he is the basis for both our unity, since he dwells in all of us and he is one, and for the diversity that we have. And that's part of what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4, is the unity and the diversity. There is that unity, one spirit in each of us binds us together with one another and with Jesus Christ, as Paul says, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's the unity. And we saw in in our reading this morning that that confession that we have, that truth that we have, that one hope is in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But there's also diversity in that the Spirit gives to us, each of us, gifts that are different, in different proportions. Paul reminds us that they are also given by Christ based on his victorious exaltation. We saw that in our reading this morning in verses 8 through 10. But their gifts, the gifts are not all the same in each one of us. Just as our physical body 
is made up of, of fingers and toes and all sorts of other things, so we are all given different gifts by the Holy Spirit. We are all given gifts. They are given to us by the Spirit. It says, who apportions, from 1 Corinthians 12, 11, who apportions to each one. See, so you're not left out. Nobody can sit here. Nobody can think in their mind and say, I don't have a gift that I can use in the church that can be put to use. Because Paul says that the Spirit gives to each one individually as he wills. The gifts that you have have been given to you for the church by the Spirit of God. For the common good of the church. And as Paul is talking about that here in Ephesians chapter 4, he comes to verse 11, and again, as a direct result of Christ's victorious work, Paul says that, that he gave as gifts to the church a different type of gift. And that is the gift of certain types of, of men. It's in verse 11. It says that he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers or pastors. And we remember from last week that those last two, they're the shepherds and teachers, are two understand or to be understood as two tasks of one type of person, one office. We saw last week that those first two categories, the apostles and the prophets, were part of the initial and especially in the the case of the apostles, the foundational work of the church and in the church. We very importantly noted that by the time of the closing of the New Testament at the end of the first century, that that foundation had been laid. And the offices of apostle and prophet, having fulfilled their task that they were given to the church for, they have been ended. There is no need for them. There's no one today who could fit the qualifications anyway. The history of God's working in the world has, has moved past that foundational period and into the, now the working of or the ordinary offices of the church that are laid out by the apostles in their teaching that they have given to us that we have in that wonderful word, the Scriptures. But God continues to, to gift certain men and to give them certain gifts and then to give them as gifts to the church. That's what he's talking about here. As Paul says here, the evangelists and pastors and teachers. The ever-giving God continuing to give gifts to his church for the good of the church, for the good of the body. So, I have gifts. And, as we saw earlier, you have gifts. We all have gifts in order to work in order to see the church grow, in order to see our brothers and sisters that are here in this congregation to grow in their faith. But how do they work together? Especially here as Paul pulls out this idea of, of at the end of the verse, the pastor-teacher. How does that work? How, How does all of our giftedness work together? Your gifts, my gifts. What is my purpose? Here, what is your purpose here? How do we work together here in the church as God would have us to work? 
Now, we know that we are all called to give service in the church. We are all called to do the works of service or the works of ministry. And last week, we began by looking at the provision for the ministry, the provision for the service, which is what we had in verse 11 with that list. But your gifts, even though Paul is going to talk, to, talk about them a little bit later, are no less important than mine. And they are likewise given by the Spirit so that the work of ministry can go on. So how is this work divided up? And we, we, we saw the provision for, for ministry last week. What we want to look at today is the division of the work of ministry. And we'll look at it next week as well. And then we will see also what, what is the goal of that. What is the vision for the work of ministry? So that's what we're going to be looking at. Like I said, last week, the provision for the work of ministry. This morning, the division of the work of ministry. And we can divide that into two things. The first is what the pastor does, the pastor-teacher does. Because as Paul writes here in, in Ephesians 4, in verses 11 and 12, he divides this, the work of ministry in the church, the service of the church, into two categories, to two headings. And again, remember, this is all the result of Christ's work, a result of Christ's victorious exaltation. It was as he left, as he ascended, that he then sent the Holy Spirit, that he again gave these gifts to us all. So first we're going to look this morning at what this pastor-teacher is, what he does. And this applies to any pastor of any church. It can be a little strange uh, having the pastor standing up and saying this is what the pastor is, but it's, it applies to any pastor anywhere. Why is the pastor here? Why is the pastor in any church? Why am I here? This also, to a degree, includes the work of one of the other offices that is, that is given to us in the New Testament, and that's the office of elder or overseer. The elders of the church, together with the pastor, are given the responsibility to oversee the church, to shepherd the flock of God in a particular location. Our pastor, our elders, are given the task to oversee and to shepherd the flock of God in this congregation. And their job, generally speaking, is to lead the church, to serve the church. See, in Christianity, those two words overlap greatly. The biblical model of leadership is servant leadership. We call our pastors ministers, and that word minister means servant. So we are servants. The elders are servants. Paul says that along with the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists that God has given men to the church who are gifted and called to be pastors, shepherds, pastor teachers or shepherd teachers. That word pastor means shepherd. And again, those are two aspects of, of this office. But in general... There are the elders in the church who oversee the church. They are called by God. The elders are. They are recognized by the church. You elect your elders. You call your pastor. 
But they are used by Christ to exercise spiritual leadership and spiritual guidance and spiritual authority in the church. See, in the church, God sets the rules. He sets the standards. He sets the requirements. Where are they? Where do we find them? Of course, we find them right here. In his word, his wonderful word that he's given to us. And in the church, God also calls men and he equips them. Then in the local church, through a process that involves the leaders of the church and the members of the church, such men are recognized as having the gifts to fulfill that work, and they are called to use them in this congregation. And then those men are set apart, recognized, ordained to work to the work of service in the church. And in the case of elders, those men then are the ruling authority in the church. They have spiritual oversight. According to the scriptures, they lead. According to the scriptures, they give guidance. They have spiritual oversight. They have spiritual responsibility before God to watch over the souls of the flock, over the congregation. They are the shepherds of the flock, and they are called to shepherd the flock of their local church. Now, some of those elders, considered very broadly, those overseers, function primarily in the ruling capacity. They have to have an ability to teach, but most of them are what we call ruling elders, and and their job is to, to oversee, to rule. But there are some in the church, some elders in the church, who have a special calling. They have a an additional function in the church according to the scriptures. They have a specific giftedness to labor in the word, to labor in doctrine, to teach and to preach. Paul speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.17 of elders who rule, then he says, and also of a special category of elders, he says, those who labor in preaching and teaching. In... Reformed and Presbyterian churches, we speak of two types, two subdivisions of, of the office of elder. We speak of ruling elders, and those are the ones we typically call elders, and we speak of teaching elders. Them we typically call pastor. So God has given to the church those who are not only shepherds, but those who are shepherds and teachers or as we call them, pastors. And they are the ones that are in Paul's mind here. And we we want to see what what is their function, what is their purpose in the church. Along with the the long past apostles and prophets who ministered during the New Testament time, the evangelists who functioned both then and today, what is the task of the pastor, of the pastor-teacher? Well, we see it very simply At the beginning of verse 12, if you look there, you'll get the answer to that question. His task is to equip the saints. That's it. That is the biblical function of the teaching shepherd, of the pastor. That is the answer to the question, what does the pastor do? His task, his calling, is to equip the saints. Now, to equip as Paul uses it here, uh, is, is to train or to, to perfect or mature. It refers to causing something to 
be in a condition in which it functions well, to put something in order, to prepare something for a purpose. So when we work all of those out, it can be either restorative or preparatory, this this equipping is. It can mean to restore the usefulness of something, the word that's used here. In Matthew 4.21, Matthew records that Jesus saw James and John in the boat with their father mending nets, nets that had been torn through the process of fishing and, and fixing those back up. The word that's used there is the word that's used here to equip the saints. When you go to the chiropractor and he adjusts your back, or the doctor who treats you to restore you to health are both doing that, are both equipping you in that sense of restoring you. The word can also mean to complete something, to bring it to completion. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul writes that we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete, there's the word, what is lacking in your faith. And it can also mean and I think this is probably the, the word that is most in Paul's mind here. It can mean to prepare something for use. To prepare something for, for use. Over in 2 Timothy 3.16, a very important verse, Paul speaks of Scripture being profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped. He may be fully prepared for the good works that God calls him to do. So to to equip is to prepare or to repair. Both are functions of the teaching shepherd in the church. And that's so fundamental for for pastors to understand and for people in in the pews to understand, for congregations to understand, and to remember the job of a pastor, the job uh, of, of the minister in a church, also the, min- the purpose of the elders, but specifically here, Paul's talking about pastor teachers, their function is to equip the saints, to prepare the saints for works of service. It's not, and in many places, many pastors seem to have misread this or not read this, Because the purpose of the pastor is not to entertain the saints. Not to get up in the pulpit and tell one story after another. Or one joke after another. Not to be witty and flashy and put on a show. It's not to impress the saints. His task is not to show you his his great learning and, and his mastery of rhetoric and logic and original languages and use great big words that no one very often even he does not understand. It's not to belittle the saints. I remember a couple of churches that I've been in over my life where the pastor, over prolonged periods, would stand in the pulpit and just pound on the people. Uh, Some even naming names of people who had done bad things or wrong things. My time is not to be spent up here tearing down the saints that I'm supposed to be building up, or any pastor. Jesus did not snuff out of smoking flax or break a bruised reed, you remember, and a pastor shouldn't either. 
Rather, the, the teacher, the pastor teacher, should be encouraging the smoking flax to, to see it ignite into someone on fire for the Lord, as they say. He should mend the bruised reed and support it as it, as it continues to grow and hopefully gets strong. Now, that does not mean that there is no time for hard words, stern reproof, matter-of-fact statements about sin and judgment and repentance. That's part of the pastor's work, too. I'll tell you, it's one of the hardest parts of a pastor's work. It's a difficult part, made more difficult sometimes by the fact that most people don't see or see it rather as the pastor being nosy and judgmental and, and he should just mind his own business, thank you very much. See, but God's truth is that that is his business. That is part of equipping the saints. And that's different from belittling, to confront. That's part of his task. Those are the things that are part of what a pastor is and is to do. A pastor is not, first and foremost, an administrator. He's not a CEO. He's not a politician. He's not a a motivational speaker. But he's a shepherd. He's a teacher. And his job is to equip. And if I, or any pastor, tries to or aspires to be more than that, well, he's really aspiring to be less than that and is not being faithful to what God has called him to do. The task, the calling of a pastor-teacher is, verse 11, to equip the saints for works of service. Do I do that, looking at myself here, do I do that perfectly? Well, unfortunately for you, the sheep here, no, I don't. Are there places where I am less than I should be? Yes, there are. Every pastor has them. Most pastors are, are great at one aspect of their work and maybe mediocre at another and maybe not so great at another. That's partly where the other elders come in. That's why we rejoice in Presbyterianism in a plurality of elders. Not to mention the deacons who are an invaluable part of the work of the church. And it is most certainly where prayer comes in from you, for your pastor. But my job, the job of the pastor-teacher is to equip you, the saints. That's actually the, the, the word here. The godly ones to equip you. How do I do that? How does the pastor do that? As the teaching shepherd in the church, how does he do that? How do I equip you? Well, I equip you, I'm called to equip you by shepherding you and teaching you. Again, Ephesians 4.11, the shepherds and teachers. Again, two aspects of one person, one office. And I, or any pastor, do it first, along with the other elders in the church, by exercising oversight in the church. Over in 1 Peter, Peter talks about this too. 
He says this, he says in the beginning of chapter 5, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. So Peter, who he says was an elder himself, shepherds or tells the shepherds to shepherd the flock by overseeing it, watching over it, watch over them, guide them, correct them, encourage them. And, and notice he says there how. And here is, is really the heart of a, a true shepherd, a true pastor. He says, do that not under compulsion. Don't do it because you have to. Don't do it because it's your job to do it but do it because you love them. He says, do it willingly. He says, not for shameful gain. A pastor can't be in the ministry for what he can get from the sheep, but for what he can give to the sheep. Peter says, do it eagerly. And he says, not domineering over those in your charge. That echoes that statement of Jesus in Matthew 20 where he said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. In Peter, 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Be examples to the flock. God's shepherds are to lead by example, as Paul did. He said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, to the church, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Acts 20, 28, Paul mentioned to the elders, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Be concerned for them, he said. Be concerned for yourself and for them. Guard them, care for them. The pastor's job is on one hand to guide the flock. He's given the responsibility before God to have oversight of that flock. And as we talked about earlier, this is the task of all the elders, but of the pastor no less, and of the pastor specifically. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. I tell you, as a pastor and for an elder, those are a few of the most terrifying words to read as those who will give account. The pastor, the elders will give account to God for how they do this, how they equip the saints, how they shepherd the flock. The pastor is accountable to God for you. And so you have a responsibility as well. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. When the pastor talks to you, visits you, and asks tough questions, sometimes embarrassing questions, don't pull back. Don't tell him to mind his own business because he is. You are his business. Your soul is his business. The state of your soul, beloved, is my concern. 
And so, like Paul said elsewhere, I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's part of the job of the pastor. He's a shepherd. There's another aspect of that that Paul mentions here. By the other phrase that he uses, or the other word that he uses, he is a pastor, he is a shepherd, and he is a teacher. So the pastor shepherds the flock, he equips the flock by teaching them. And a, prime, a, a pastor's primary means of equipping the saints is by teaching them the word of God. That last part, so important, it's not just to teach you, it's to teach you God's word. It's to teach you what God wants you to know. By revealing and proclaiming Christ and the will of God and the promises of God. We get a lot of help in learning about the work of a pastor, teacher, by looking at three books in the New Testament that we call the pastoral epistles. Two letters to Timothy, one letter to Titus. Timothy, of course, was a young man converted under Paul's ministry. He was a regular companion of Paul. He was a teaching shepherd in Ephesus. And he was a man that Paul considered his true child in the faith. And he talked about Timothy to the Philippians. He said, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy, very special to the Apostle Paul. Also Titus, he was another convert of Paul, and he was the pastor of the church in Crete. And in Paul's letters to those two men, we learn a lot, because they're both pastors, we learn a lot about what Paul thinks is important in pastoral ministry the work of a pastor. Listen to what he says to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.1, he says, I charge you, that means I, I put this on you before God. This is what you are commanded to do. When we ordain an elder, when we ordain a pastor in our denomination, one of the things that is done is there's somebody who comes and gives the charge where he sets before the man that is being ordained the the crucial aspects and the responsibility of the ministry. So Paul says here, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In 1 Timothy 6.2, after Paul lays out a bunch of, of doctrinal issues, he says, prescribe and teach these things. In 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. And then, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, he tells Timothy that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof, and for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. To Titus, he says similar things. He says, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And later he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And Paul himself said to the elders of the Ephesian church, I did not shrink 
from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So whether it's from the pulpit, the podium, the study, the counseling room, the living room couch, the golf course, the pastor is to be equipping the saints from the word of God, teaching them God's word. And it's, all, it's made all the more clear here in Ephesians chapter 4 when you consider that all four of these categories that are given, these gifts of Christ to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, though they have things among them that are different, they all have one thing in common, and they are all word gifts. The apostles wrote the scripture and expounded scripture. The prophets in their normal work preached scripture and explained scripture. The evangelists, they go out and proclaim scripture. They proclaim the gospel, the good news, the word of God. And the shepherd teacher, the pastor teacher is to preach the word of God. They equip God's people as they teach the word of God to them. God has richly provided his church with gifted people throughout the history of the church to serve his people, to equip his people through the word of God. Because you see, beloved people of God, God wants us to be fed ultimately not by the words of men, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, his word. And that is the work of the pastor, the teaching shepherd. He teaches that foundational apostolic teaching. He is to shape his own life by the word, and he is to equip you to shape your life by the word. And as we've seen, he is not only to equip you, but he is to equip himself. Not only to seek to make you holy, but to make himself holy as well. You know, when I, when I study, I must be studying for myself first. Because only then will I really be able to, to equip you. When I preach, I preach as the one who is listening as much as the one who is speaking. There are too many men in too many pulpits today who, if you'll pardon the expression, don't practice what they preach. In fact, there are many today who don't even believe what they preach. That's why Paul said to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching." That's why he said to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourself and all the flock. He says to the pastor, love the word, live the word, teach the word. So the teaching shepherd is to truly be a minister of the word, a servant of the word. That is to be, the Bible is to be his field of expertise. Not sports scores. Not the stock market, the Bible. I think it was Spurgeon who said about that great Puritan preacher, John Bunyan. He said, prick Bunyan anywhere and he will bleed Bible. That is to be true for every pastor. Paul said to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, 
correctly handling the word of truth. Let me share something with you here. This is something that was written um, quite a while ago. It circulated around in various Christian books and sermons, um, and it really speaks to the heart of, of a pastor and to the right attitude of the congregation toward a man who would be their pastor. Um, It begins by saying, fling him into his office. Then tear the office sign off of the door and nail on it a sign that says, study. Take him off the mailing lists, lock him up with his books. This was written a long time ago. It says, and his typewriter. For some of you who may not know what a typewriter is, come see me. I have one, actually, in in my study, so you can stop by and see it. Slam him down on his knees before texts of the Bible and broken hearts of the flock and the lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through and let him come out only when he is bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Shut his mouth, forever spouting remarks, and stop his tongue, forever tripping lightly over every non-essential. Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit. And make him preach the word of the living God. Test him. Quiz him. Examine him. Humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and political infighting. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus. And when at long last he dares assay the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then dismiss him. Tell him that you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentaries and think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's weary drives and bless the sordid baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he can. <clears throat> so I'll have one of you pray for our baked potato bar at lunch today. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. Break him across the board of his ill-gotten popularity. Smack him hard with his own prestige. Corner him with questions about God. Cover him with demands for celestial wisdom and give him no escape until he's back against the wall of the word. And sit, him down, or, and sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of the downstreet gossip, but give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. 
And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he's privileged to translate the truth of God to man, finally transferred from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently and blow a muted trumpet and lay him down softly. Place that two-edged sword in his coffin and raise the tomb triumphant, for he was a brave soldier of the word, and ere he died, he had become a man of God. Ezra in the scriptures is a beautiful example of this. Remember Ezra in the Old Testament, the scribe who led the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after the exile? Ezra 7.10 says that Ezra had set his heart to study the word of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's the work of a pastor. To set his heart to study the word of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's what the pastor is. And that's what a pastor does. And now there's no time to talk about what you are to do. Don't snicker. We'll have to devote the whole time next week to that. And then we'll finish up our passage here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your grace in, in using flawed men as shepherds over your sheep. We confess that there is not one of them who is adequate in himself to these things. But we are reminded that our adequacy is from you. We pray, Father, for our pastor. We pray that you would strengthen him in the things in which he needs strengthening. We pray that you would humble him in the things in which he needs to be humbled. We pray that you would increase his knowledge of you and of your word. We pray that you would cause him to walk in a holy way before you. And may he be an example to this flock. We pray, Father, that you would continue to bless your church, continue to raise up men throughout this world to stand in pulpits and to proclaim the glorious and wonderful word that you have given. And by it, Lord, may he shepherd, may they shepherd your flock, and may they teach your flock as you've called them to do, and as they will give an account for doing. We ask this all in the name of our precious Savior. Amen.